Your source for community. Muskoka-made talk shows are on Muskoka Magazine, The Bay 88.7. Hey, this is Dr. Shervin. Muskoka Magazine is brought to you by Dairy Lane Dental, keeping Muskoka smiling for over 30 years. Please visit DairyLaneDental.com. This is Boyer's Modern History of Muskoka with your host, Patrick Boyer. Hello and welcome to Boyer's Modern History of Muskoka. I'm Patrick Boyer. This year, our programs have addressed a wide range of indigenous subjects. The last two, in October and November, told about the evolution and fragmentation of the Mohawk First Nation and the relocation in 1881 of a number of Mohawk families to Muskoka and conditions they faced, beginning a new community on land purchased in West Muskoka's Gibson Township. We pick up the story from there. In those decades, Ontario's government wanted settlers farming Muskoka, but it also licensed logging companies to harvest Muskoka's crop of forests. This created additional chaos over land use, royalties to the crown for cutting pine trees and clogged waterways, floating their logs to sawmills, for example, closed rivers that settlers and supply boats had to navigate. Not only did the province thoughtlessly mash up farming and forestry operations in the big picture, but it created problems in specific cases too. For instance, when Wada Mohawks challenged a logging permit, that Ontario issued to a non-Indigenous man to cut timber on their lands, the province upheld his right to fell the trees. It said the permit was issued before the government sold them the land and made no compensation to the Mohawks. Pocketing two fees for the same land. The provincial government also made life difficult for the hard-pressed water settlers because it had a policy to assimilate Indians into white society. Ontario, accordingly, twice refused the request by Indian Affairs to waive Crown royalty fees for pines Mohawk cut on their lands. But most egregious of all, the provincial government bluntly refused to grant Mohawks title to the lands in Gibson Township that had been bought and paid for, leaving them in limbo with no proof of ownership. By 1896, a decade and a half after arriving in Muskoka, Inability to deal with their own lands, even to authorize small business ventures, continued thwarting water. For example, the community's council asked permission from Indian Affairs Department to 
issue a hunting permit to Alfred Jackson, a non-Indigenous resident, to bring in hunting parties. Ottawa refused on the grounds Ontario still had not issued a Crown patent or title deed for the reserve. So the federal government's excuse was the provincial government's brazen, unlawful treatment of the Wada Mohawks. Things were not getting any better. They were getting worse. More than a decade into the 1900s, not having a document confirming their ownership of Muskoka land, which Ontario continued to refuse to issue as property law required, the Wada Mohawks had a classic catch-22. Although the plan had been for more land, indeed, uh, to cover all uh, Mohawks who the uh, it might possibly leave the seminary in Quebec and come to Muskoka, in the early 1900s, Chief Angus Cook emphasized that it was the uncertainty about title that made people suspicious about moving here. A direct quote from Chief Angus Cook. Information about the impacts of this government-created conundrum are reported in a history of the Wada Mohawk community published in 2002. There was little migration from Kanasataki to Wada, it states, quote, despite the fact Indian Affairs tried over and over again to convince the Mohawks remaining there in Kanasataki to move and, quote, held out hope well into the 20th century there would be a mass migration from Kanasataki to Muskoka. Some who stayed behind were Catholics who blamed the Protestants for breaking Mohawk unity. Others, disappointed by low estimates of compensation for their property assets, saw nothing positive about moving to Muskoka either. Some who did move to Wada in the 1880s and 1890s soon enough returned to Quebec. It is a telling detail that in the eyes of Indian Affairs and the Mohawk Council at Wada, even that brief residence made those people members of the Wada community. Those who returned to Kanasataki were kept on the books in Ottawa as belonging to the Wada Band rather than the Kanasataki Band. For its part, Wada Council sent the returnees, the go-backs, a share of revenue from timber sales and hydro license payments. So for policy reasons of both federal government and the Wada Council, community membership appeared slightly larger than it was. Compounding the Mohawks' unabated consternation about not being able to prove ownership for the land was how the community's peaceful enjoyment of their territory was often denied by intrusions onto the territory. The challenges by outsiders came in many forms. Initially, the new arrivals in 1881 had been surprised to find a community of squatter families inhabiting a section of their land. 
just as Ontario surveyors had been astonished when discovering these French-speaking Métis families during their survey of the township two decades earlier. A non-human intrusion came as flood water. <clears throat> Dams built on the Gibson River by Muskoka Mill and Lumber Company and the Muskoka Slide Dam and Boom Company, a consortium of other logging outfits, was constructed just outside the reserve boundaries. The dams backed up a reservoir of water to float their winter's harvest of logs downstream to sawmills in spring. The backup flooding of the river covered Mohawk families' shorelines two feet above prior high water levels, inundating some 330 acres. Intrusion on a grand scale resumed when a new breed of squatters began moving in. During the 1880s, Muskoka's vacation economy was beginning to boom as city dwellers enjoyed escaping to lakeside properties on the Canadian Shield. <clears throat> a northern section of waterlands filled with trespassing cottagers who had not paid the Mohawks nor even sought permission to occupy their land and build on it. The attitude in settler culture that inconvenient Indians were movable, even expendable, was now being displayed in Gibson Township. With so many parties having a role in the land deal of 1881, it was easy for officials to duck responsibility, leaving the Wada Mohawks to watch intruders on their land brazenly assert ownership under the legal doctrine of squatters' rights. This intrusion became an existential threat because the Wada Mohawks could not prove they owned the land cottagers were now enjoying. Putting a stop to such squatting was a task for the Indian agent. Up to 1884, Agent John McGeer became increasingly devoted to the Wada Mohawks and their plight. But in April that year, the Indian Agency for, for WATA was transferred to the Northern Ontario Superintendency Division II, covering principally Ojibwe communities from Georgian Bay up to Lake Nipissing. Now it included a lone Mohawk reserve as well. The Indian agent at Perry Sound had virtually no connection with the orphaned Muskoka Band, now in his jurisdiction. However, the provincial government had plenty of contact with city voters asserting that it was wrong for Indians to hold prime cottage lots they were not using. Pressure mounted for Ontario to reclaim some of Wada's Muskoka territory with its growing commercial and vacation value. In the political and racial climate of the day, white urban property owners who voted in provincial elections, outranked marginalized First Nations in the remote bush. After a short break, we'll see if anything worse could possibly happen. By Muskoka for Muskoka, your collection of Muskoka-based talk shows. Muskoka Magazine, The Bay, 88.7. I'm Dr. Shervin from Dairy Lane Dental, and you're listening to Muskoka Magazine. This is Boyer's Modern History of Muskoka with your host, Patrick Boyer. 
Welcome back. We've been reviewing the many grave problems Swata Mohawks faced when establishing their new reserve in Muskoka. Once the First World War erupted in 1914, their lands, unbelievably, came under fresh assault. As the bloody slaughter continued in Europe, Britain wanted more Canadians for its war of attrition. So in, eight, in 1917, Canada began conscripting soldiers. Under this cloak of mandatory military service for all males 18 to 40, Canadian police began forcing Indigenous men into the army, often directly violating their treaty rights. For one of Mohawks, forced enlistment was uniquely bizarre because it came wrapped as a reverse land claim. The Ontario government wanted back 10,808 acres of the Wada lands, leaving the community with only 14,795 acres, a 42% reduction of the lands bought and paid for in 1881. This buyback would have been more easily prevented by the Mohawks if they had a title deed to their lands. But after a third of a century without issuing its required crown patent, the Ontario government had successfully denied the Mohawks the proof that they could hold up and say, see, this is our land. They had no deed of title. All the same, the Water Council, understandably, refused to approve any surrender of their territory. Then in 1917, four men arrived. Two were from Indian Affairs in Ottawa, which was helping implement conscription of soldiers. Two came up from the Provincial Crown Lands Office in Toronto. Now, very few men remained at Wada. Most were already in the Army fighting overseas or away at essential war work in munition plants or logging and sawmill operations. Gathering together the few band counselors still at the reserve, these officials threatened that unless council returned 10,808 acres, their sons would be dragged into the war. If you don't give up the land, we called one elder about the edict, we're going to pull all the boys, put them on the front line. Zebedee Road came home from the meeting, furious about what had happened. We lost the land, he told his young son, Frank. Old guys with some military-aged sons, they all give up. The Water Mohawks, in addition to repeatedly asking for and being denied a title deed to the acreage, were left in the dark about arrangements between the two levels of federal and provincial government. The labyrinthian nature of the transaction, the unique uncertainty about ownership rights to the Gibson Township property, plus the intermittent registration of individual lots to specific heads of families meant that 
anyone wanting to treat the 1881 transaction as open-ended felt they could do so. The federal and provincial governments were making a play to recoup the increasingly valuable land under cover of wartime press censorship and overriding preoccupation with pending defeat. Reclaiming 42% of the Wada lands removed high-value trapping areas with their, while their considerable commercial potential now belonged to the Ontario government, which benefited by selling southern Ontario Ontarians cottage lots on it. By 1939, another world war brought new problems to WADA and intrusions again onto their remaining lands. With the province rapidly industrializing to manufacture everything needed for the war effort, Ontario Hydro needed to supply more electricity to factories. Without consulting the WADA Mohawks, the provincial power utility used its overriding powers of expropriation and dammed Musquash River waters flowing through water to Georgian Bay, pooling water to drive turbines at a large generating plant it built at Big Eddy. The backed-up waters flooded large sections of Wanda land, including the Mohawk Cemetery. In addition, more forested land was clear-cut to create a wide swath for Hydro's high-voltage transmission lines and their towers, carrying electricity to southern Ontario factories. Big Eddy development also damaged hunting and fishing by causing decline in wildlife and cutting off access to harvesting areas. Just as the end seemed in sight for incursions into Wanta lands, Ontario's program of building 400 series highways took a westward turn from Barrie up to Sudbury through Wata. That left Wata Council to sort out claims for the land used by the Highways Department and the high-speed road system's detrimental impacts on their community, alongside claims against Ontario Hydro for its vast projects on their land. Such history could lead nowhere except a land claim by Wata Mohawks for justice, remediation, and compensation. After extensive research in the 1970s, Wada's claim upon the government of, of Canada was made in the early 18 in the, in the early 1980s. For the nearly 11,000 acres, Ottawa returned to Ontario in 1918 without consent of the Wada Council to settle a disagreement between the two levels of government. Negotiations of the claim filed in the early 1980s did not begin until 1993 as the governments stalled. By 2002, an agreement in principle was reached that a majority of WADA members ratified in an October 25th, 2003 referendum. <clears throat> now, while this land claim was slowly proceeding, a much earlier problem over Mohawk land in Quebec 
erupted into the Oka crisis during summer 1990. An instinctive and essential response to it came when Chief Stephen Stock led a party of Mohawks from Wata to participate in solidarity with their ancestors at Oka, known to Mohawks as Kanasataki. The issue of indigenous land being forfeited in Quebec brought visceral feelings and intense memories of their own betrayal in Muskoka. Arriving to reinforce fellow Mohawks, opposing encroachments on their territory, this lost tribe of Mohawks from Muskoka was warmly embraced at the blockades. There, in grim solidarity of resistance, as Quebec provincial police and then the Canadian army stood against them, they remained in the 78-day standoff Oka crisis. Although journalists reported Mohawk opposition to a golf course expansion onto their lands as the flashpoint for this confrontation, indigenous knowledge keepers understood this showdown had been fomenting for generations. Back through the Mohawk removal to Muskoka, back through the persistent land claims by the Mohawks against the Sulpicians over common lands, back through the creation of the Sulpician seminaries, back through the flight of the Iroquois refugees into Canada, back through the fur trade wars, the disorientations of Christian missionaries, on all the way back to the first arrival of Europeans at the Eastern Doorway where Mohawks had once safeguarded their lands and the territories of the Iroquois Confederacy. Now, back in Muskoka, in 2005, the final agreement was reached for the land claim. Wada Mohawks received $9.7 million plus 8,300 acres of vacant provincial crown land beside their existing Wadatari and which is now part of the reserve. Some Wada lands claimed could not be returned because Ontario had sold them to others, leading to financial compensation instead. Ontario contributed the land and $3.45 million as its share of the settlement. The federal government, $6.24 million. Chief Blaine Commandant said, Water members were glad the land has been repatriated to our territory. Then added, the land is the land, and as First Nations, we have a significant appreciation for that. The even more complex claims against Ontario Hydro's various developments and the Provincial Transport Ministry's road building projects also glacially moved to resolution. The wrongs committed against the resilient Mohawks who, contain, who today live and prosper on their own lands at Wata have come through their onerous and polarizing migration from Kanasataki to Muskoka. That became history, not forgotten, but no longer unreconciled. Thank you for listening to Boyer's Modern History of Muskoka. 
Here on Hunters Bay Radio in Huntsville, our producer is Matt Fisher. I'm Patrick Moyer.